Hey everyone, welcome back to Week Notes, the podcast from Instill. It's 11 months since we finished season 2, so we're just easing back in gently to season 3 here in the middle of 2022. And we're starting off with Tara and Matty. And we have a great conversation for you here, talking about serverless and TypeScript and designed by contract and all of that uh, fun stuff. So hope you enjoy it and hope to see you again soon. Yeah, so I, I don't know, Tara, whether we're going to teach you anything. Um, I was hoping to, to learn something interesting from you, but you're the one with the most experience in the room. Um, yes and no. I think my experience is up to a point. And I think in some ways nothing has nothing ever changes, right? But everything's changed at the same time. But the whole developer experience has changed completely from when I was building software. You know, so when I was building software, most of it you were building from scratch. Solving problems from first principles was was where your skills were, were at. You know, so this is back in the nineties. You were building systems really from nothing. For us today, you're building with a whole different set of tools, different approach, everything in terms of how teams operate and work is completely different. You know, I, I grew up in an environment where essentially you were handed a component or a system to develop and you were the person who got on and, and developed that part of the system. You were responsible for it. You owned it. Uh, you stood by it. Um, you got upset when people criticized aspects of your code or give you feedback because that was the way it was rather than being collaborative and being shared and being owned by everyone. You 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 owned it. So there, there were good parts of that, but also I think aspects of that that weren't good. You know, the fact that people felt so emotional about their code rather than actually realizing this is this is code, code that's owned by everyone. We're much more collaborative these days than, than we used to be, much more open to feedback. That's great. That's absolutely fantastic. Get rid of those hero programmers. Yeah, I think people still get really defensive of their code, though. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Say you're working on something and you put it up for a pull request and you maybe spend a few hours working on this thing and somebody just tears it to shreds. I mean, that, that doesn't feel good. I think people always be defensive about things that they work on. Yeah. But you have to sort of practice to not let that happen. You know, you have to understand that it's not, it's not personal. It's just people are trying to make the, the product better. You know, and it's, it's advice, you know, it's a learning opportunity as well. It's a way to learn new things. Yeah, yeah. And you know yourself when you write a piece of code and you come back to it the next day and you look, oh, God, what was I thinking? What was I doing? And not just your code when you're writing, even writing an email, the email you never send, right? So you come back and you go, right, don't send it. And I think we all have that. And that's, that's the gap you give yourself to criticize what you've done. That's what people are experiencing the first time they come to your code. And they're looking at it. It's just that fresh pair of eyes and... But I know like when I put stuff up from, um, you know, from a planning management point of view, I stick it up with an ugly first draft first and then just ask for feedback and I welcome it. The ideas are put forward and then we start to iterate and improve. And it's, to me, it's a very similar process to what we're doing with code today. It is. It's something we, in our current project, I've tried to start doing that even before we get to the code. We've started to look at, if you're looking to make a change, like a bigger change to the project or propose something new that you make an RFC first and sort of lay out, this is at a high level, what I want to achieve here. The sooner you get that out for feedback, the better, because you haven't invested a lot of time in, in writing code, but you can get feedback on this is what I'm thinking I'm, I'm going to do here. These are the services that I'm going to use to solve this problem. And then letting other people have their say and whether or not they think that's a good idea. And every time I've done that recently, I felt that it's always led to a much better solution. And everybody's sort of taken a bit of ownership of the solution as well you know where it's not just like this is Matthew's solution this is our team's solution this is what we're going to do and people I think that just taking people on a journey with you when you're trying to solve problems is much better than just being a hero programmer like you said and 
I do still think there are kinds of projects where significant thought needs to be put in at the very start, which are they're less kind of Lego projects, less of bringing together existing technologies and bolting them together, and more about you know you're creating something almost new, and that sort of intellectual investment often comes from one or two people at, at the start to really think through the the problem. I agree. I think as part of that. Sometimes you have to relax your standards slightly as well. If you are trying to come up with something new, sometimes the best thing to do is to just go ahead first and, and see where it takes you rather than doing a lot of upfront planning, particularly if it's very skilled individuals. Let them use their skills to get something going first and get something done really quickly and then bring in the modern practices and you know the team over time and then you know, and iterate and improve these things because you can never get it right first time anyway. So it's always going to be a constant iteration and improvement of things and then making things more collaborative as you go. I mean, listen, we see the people talking about microservices and hexagonal architecture and the temptation to you know start the project and create 15 different microservices off the bat and separate everything out at the very beginning. And then you might realize down the line that you only actually needed two microservices in actual fact. And you made things much harder for yourself at the very beginning because you'd separate it out. And that is the right thing to do. But it's the right thing to do over time rather than the right thing to do at the very beginning of a project. Yeah. I think as long as the architecture allows you to do that spitting out at some point, yeah. there's always a tipping point. That's where the skill comes in with the individuals to know, I'm going to build this very quickly, but I know that I can decouple it. Even, even if, you, if you separate things out in the code first in such a way where it's a lot easier to separate the infrastructure down the line, there's a nice way of, of you know, using ports and adapters and things like that to you know in the code first and then spitting it out over time i think a skill that you just learn with more experience yeah there's a point which that investment and quite significant investment is worth it but there's a point before that that it's not worth it if the project's not going to go beyond that tipping point then it's it's actually is is this worth the effort of doing we know the kind of projects we're doing they're invariably going to go over that tipping point so it's do you do that investment up front to save you time down the line Go slow to start with and then get it back later. I think we had an internal conversation recently about secure programming. And it was, it was actually, it just turned out the conversation was about design by contract, about building defensive interfaces, making sure you think through the contract of, of, of your APIs and building that almost like firewall in terms of what you accept through that API. You're just rejecting anything that doesn't meet the terms and conditions. That's been around for 45, 50 years. That technique so it was really good to hear people talking about it as if it was almost new again but it's designed by contracts it was built into the eiffel language back in the back in the 70s i think but yeah everything's come everything comes around right it's it's the same idea it's coming around but being refreshed and, and still as important today as as they were then and I, I still think it's a great way to think even if you don't formally write assertions or write defensive checks you don't want defensive checks proliferating across your code it's redundant it's extra code but the thinking behind when you put yourself in the shoes of the calling code and going, right, what are the constraints? What am, what am I passing in here? What am I not passing in to this particular interface? And still thinking in those terms, I think, is very, is very important, even if you're not really writing proper contracts necessarily. It's the thinking and the design thinking, I think, is very, very useful. Say some more modern programming languages are starting to help developers with that as well. I mean, we're using TypeScript in our current project, and I feel that it sort of guides you down that path anyway about using interfaces, even for calling like a function. It's much nicer to have an interface as the parameter to that function rather than like, you know, a bunch of individual parameters. 
and then you get you know type safety around that and some validation depending on what sort of types you're using in TypeShift. You're talking about like you know how that trend disappeared. I would like to know if the trend went down as the popularity of JavaScript went up. Perhaps you may be seeing it come back again as TypeScript is you know, taken over. It's just so so modern. It has so many features. We're just like this is this is unbelievable. <laughs> so I can do this and it's all checked in the IDE before I even run it. You know, especially when you're you know building serverless projects in AWS where there's a cost to having to deploy it to the cloud to actually test things. So the more you can do, you know, at build time, um, the better, essentially. I think it just removes a huge amount of mental burden, you know, and if you look at most errors in JavaScript, they're runtime errors, right? Most of them could have been trapped by the compiler. I, I love type safety and TypeScript all the way, even though I've, I've never used it. It's just the fact it's got types for me is just... <laughs> I don't really want to be writing tests that check that something's actually the type that it's supposed to be, that somebody calling this code has actually called it in the right way. It'd be much better if the compiler did that check f- for me. And uh, yeah, it's just one less thing, I guess, to, to concern myself with. Um, yeah, like I, I'm probably firmly in the camp of types. I'm just not a lover of, of <laughs> anything else. I, I, I just personally made far too many mistakes over the years and, 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 like any, any, other, any other human, I've got my infallible, right? So I make mistakes. And I just, I think having a system that gives me a safety net is just, yeah, it's just great. Yeah. I was doing TDD in Java this week and lots of people hate on Java, but actually it was fun. It's fun to write tests in Java, but at the same time, I, I love Python and Python and, and JavaScript with their dynamic typing make development pleasant as well. You know, some of the hoops that you have to jump through with TypeScript, I mean, you do end up writing some really gnarly types that you need to think really hard about. And then you put away and you never look at it again. A lot of the really gnarly stuff, like working with narrow interfaces, yes, we'll use those in big application projects, but actually that's mostly library code. It's mostly about substitution and, and being able to have pluggability inside, inside libraries that you create for third parties, unless of something you would see in, in writing a big insurance application or, or so forth when you're just trying to get stuff through to an API or get it through to a, to a database. In the current project, there are some places where there's, I would call TypeScript magic, but most of the time, like you said, we don't really need to use it, but it's nice that it's there. And um, whenever you get it working, I don't know, it just feels good in <laughs> TypeScript. Whenever you get something that is generating some type, you know, based off other types and all, it's just, it, yeah, it's very satisfying. That wee boost of endorphins. It's like the green tick yeah. from a passing test. Let me see the IDE light up and everything. It's worked, IntelliJ has worked out. I know what you mean. It just makes you feel good. <laughs> well, that's, when I was developing in anger, which has been some time, you know, I, I would have spent a lot of my time writing code and then just hitting command space or whatever I was using to generate the production code. And the type system allowed me to do that. You know, that was, that's, that's the power of a really strong type language. It could infer and, and determine what, what you're actually creating. So if a class didn't exist, and you just hit the, the right keys and the, the class gets generated. If the methods don't exist against that type, it generates it with the right return values and the right signature and all, and all that stuff. Yeah, which makes me wonder whether that's, that's the future, isn't it? Where we write down what we want and some magical system goes off and figures out what it is that we need, pulls together the resources that we need and then deploys us an application. And, and practically we've written, you know, one line of code. Is that the dream? I think that's, yeah, I think that's probably where you want to be engineering right now. <laughs> that might be the, the future jobs are in the code that's generating the code. But are we not, are we not getting there really in low code 
platforms and so forth? Is that not where we're very much where we're heading? Yeah, I think I think it is. I think that, I think if the I shared a blog post about self-provisioning runtimes, where instead of us having to write infrastructure as code, the infrastructure is inferred from the code that you actually write. So we should really, and as developers, we really want to be writing business logic, not having to worry about where how this is going to be ran in the cloud and having to write a lot of glue between different services. We really just want to get to solving the problems for the customer and all that other stuff just be inferred from what we do. And I think I think that's still a, a bit of a way off just yet, but it's getting closer and closer. And I think the approach now from AWS is that the best Lambda function that you write is the one that you delete and replace with a direct service integration. That's what they're pushing us now. So it's service full serverless or even functionless serverless where we no longer even need the right Lambda functions. It's really configuration at this stage, you know, just joining different AWS services together. And you can see how that could be automated as well. And yeah. just sort of say, I want, I want this pipeline to process some documents and put them into a different bucket based on this condition. And it goes and does a lot for you and you don't really have to worry too much about it. And, that, and from our current project, we're using some functionless aspects of AWS. And I've, I've definitely seen the benefit of being able to replace a Lambda with, with the direct integration, the performance improvement, and just the speed in which you can deliver something. I definitely like, I like it. You know, even though I know this, you know, maybe this will replace my job, make my job redundant down the line, being able to deliver features to customers faster, just that's, that's what I like about being a developer. It's not necessarily about writing code. It's about building products for people. That's, that's where I get my kick. So, but I know there are developers who enjoy writing code. You know, we just chatted about TypeScript and I do enjoy writing TypeScript, just the, the art of that. But at the end of the day, it has to give value to somebody. It can't just be writing text into an IDE. You, know, you want to produce something for the world that makes it better in some way. And that's one of the great promises of serverless, right? So it's, it's not just about not paying for idle. It's about delivering business value quicker. I hadn't actually, I wasn't aware of that idea of actually removing lambdas too, but it makes sense. You know, if they're just, if it's just raw plumbing that they can figure out and infer from, from what you're doing, then great. Yeah, no, definitely it's functionless serverless or service full serverless. I think it's the future. I, I've definitely bought into it. I know certain members of the team have, certain members of the team haven't. And it's just about figuring out when to use these tools and when not to use them, you know, because sometimes they might bite us and writing things in a Lambda has benefits as well. Like being able to write unit tests for these things. Obviously when you're using um, a managed service that Amazon provides, it's harder to test. We're seeing now that when you use uh, a managed service like that, the testing triangle sort of gets flipped all the way around and you write a lot, a lot less unit tests, but a lot more integration tests because you want to test it in the cloud, essentially, rather than on your local machine. It's trade-offs, right? So having come from a background of the requests from the browser or whatever, that, that transaction was all managed on a single thread, all the way to writing through the database and coming back. And clearly that there are scaling issues around that, et cetera. But the plus side is you could reason about the path that request was taking through your code. You could trace it. You could log it. So being able to reason about and understand if there were issues was was actually pretty easy. So what you've done is you've traded aspects of the management of that system and the deployment and the scaling and, and all that stuff. But actually, the difficulty then is, well, actually, how, how do we trace that something's gone wrong in this event-driven architecture where it's actually much more difficult to reason about where the path that that request has taken through various services? But it's arguably a, a trade-off that's worth it. 
right? Because you're able to deploy faster um, and not have to worry about the servers and, the, and, and all that stuff. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a definitely a big mental shift. But like we're talking about that, that pivot again, you know, there's a point at which architectures need to be event driven. Sounds like the direction of travel is that the unit is no longer going to be the class or the method or the module, but actually it's going to be the step function or the lambda function or whatever. So we're we're moving our concepts up up a stack. And so integration tests become the new unit tests. And we need to figure out some way to, to do what we're doing unit testing wise with this complex chain of components that are daisy chained together in interesting ways. Because those systems are complex, like the techniques that we've used in the past aren't going to work. I think the answer is your strategies of testing will will depend on what it is you're building. And you will probably find yourself leaning more towards integration tests in some environments. As Matt was saying, in serverless, that's that's the way it is. But in other cases, if you're actually in Amazon writing this, all these services and stuff, I'm sure they've got, or hope they've got thousands of unit tests to to verify all that stuff. Sometimes you look at the things that Amazon building and go, was this tested at all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How much time are you spending um, trying to improve the developer experience? So that's something that we've been focusing on recently. So I guess the project is now maybe a year old. I guess the first the first year has been spent really focused on getting an MVP ready for the customer and getting a product out there, which we've done. But now we're looking at how can we accelerate the delivery of features for the customer? And part of that is the developer experience. So things like bringing the developer to the cloud, how can we make that as short as possible? How can we get deployment times from our developer machines to our AWS accounts much faster? And and really, it's just about looking at the tooling that we have and just making the most out of it. So we use CDK to configure and deploy our infrastructure. And there's some really nice features, which we weren't using, but we are now, like HotSwap. And that makes just makes our life so much easier. And then on top of that, there's CDK Watch, where you can just have CDK watching your output folders for new builds of your Lambda functions. It'll automatically deploy those things for you behind the scenes. So you can be working away at your code and rebuilding things. And whenever you're happy that it's in a place that's ready to be tested, it's already in your AWS account ready for you to go. You could then hit it with an integration test and drop a file into S3 and watch that event then trigger your Lambda and you're not having to sit and wait for deployments to go through. And that's really where we as a team are trying to get to is making things just, just frictionless essentially for the developers on the team. So we have a lot of unit tests right now, but we need more integration tests to give us more confidence that you know, we can push these changes to production continually now, go for a continuous delivery rather than deploying where we feel like everything's ready. I think the, the technology is just amazing. In fact, we are able to focus on delivering features for the customer. I think it's just, that's just what I enjoy doing. Yeah. And the autonomy. You know, it is, it's nice that the customer trusts us to make these decisions for them. Because I'm sure there probably are some people out there who would feel uncomfortable about these newer services that Amazon are providing, maybe thinking, well, I'd rather you use containers. I'd rather this was more portable between different clouds. Is that talking about you know, Kubernetes and containers versus going full serverless? And again, it is that there's a trade-off there. You know, if you're making a business call that we need to build a platform that can be deployed across multiple clouds, then you're probably going to take a certain route. If you're, if you're looking to deliver a SaaS product into the cloud, you're best to just go all in. And certainly we're seeing that with some of our clients who are transitioning some of some of their products, um, very well-known products um, into the cloud or already in the cloud. And they're all in, in terms of where they're going with, with their cloud providers, be that you know, AWS or Azure. 
if you've got these services and you can build and deploy and get value to the customer quickly, then it's the only way. I certainly, as an application developer, I don't want to be worrying about configuring Kubernetes. That's no, not, absolutely not. That's no. not good for my customer, right? <laughs> so that's not something that like, is bringing value <laughs> necessarily to my customer directly. Whereas if that's being managed for me, because we've we've gone, in our case, gone serverless, then fantastic. I have worked on a project with um, DevOps engineers who did manage the Kubernetes cluster for me. And that was a nice luxury, I have to say. You know, I would use Kubernetes in that situation again yeah. for somebody else's problem. And I could just focus on the code. And still, you know, we're a smaller organization and smaller teams, and we need to outsource that responsibility to somebody else. And if that's just, if we can let Amazon take care of as much of that as possible, then yes, that's, I think that's ideal, really. Yeah. Um, and there's a nice middle ground with containers. Like you can use containers in, in Lambda functions as well. And we do have one in our project. So it's not really death to containers, but... But you're still using containers, even with some serverless. You just don't know about it. Our, our, our execution environments, as they're called. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah, there's, yeah. There's VMs there somewhere, you know. Yeah. Yeah, we don't even have to think about it. So why, why do I even talk about them, Power? They're not even yeah. there. No, there's an <laughs> Intel chip somewhere in the stack. Yeah. Well, we'd like to move to ARM on the, on the project as well for the cost benefits and the performance benefits. The pitch that Amazon make, you know, you can switch a bit of configuration, change the underlying architecture of your Lambda functions, and it's cheaper and faster. And that's like a one line of code change. So that would be something that's really good for us to try, but we need to be able to test it and then before we can do that. But obviously as an Apple fanboy and, you know, the ARM transition, like yeah. everything should be ARM now. Like, you know, Intel's, <laughs> Intel's dead to me. So as soon as I get my, my ARM-based Mac, you know, you obviously have to have the same, same architecture being used in the cloud. So... What people can see is that Maddie's actually wearing a T-shirt that says M1 <laughs> on it as well. Exactly. I don't know if that's... <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a, so it's like, it looks like a BMW M1, but it's actually the M1 with the Apple rainbow on it. So <laughs> yeah, And then in the back, it has like the CPU like diagram as well. So it's there like the ultimate, the ultimate nerdy, nerdy shit. But bought this just for Christmas. It took ages to come from the States. And uh, yeah, it was. It's more expensive than my wife knows. So let's just use it. <laughs> <laughs>